if you were the kind of person who was inclined to be concerned about the impacts of media bias on politics, and particularly to be under the impression that the media was biased against conservatives and Republicans, the way in which the COVID-19 crisis has been covered probably is reinforcing those concerns at the moment. Criticism of the media by conservatives has become something of a cottage industry over the past couple of decades. And it's hard not to look at the media landscape and argue that the media hasn't lived down to many of the conservative stereotypes. But digging a bit deeper, what actually drives some of the trends in the media that conservatives find so objectionable? And more broadly, what should the role of the media be, both in a crisis and in a free society? I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, etc., and you can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics, Instagram at Blind Politics, Twitter at Blind P-O-L Nolte. So, I have thus far avoided talking about the issue of the media and the way the media covers politics. But it is hard to miss the degree to which media has really driven people's reactions to the COVID-19 crisis. And... There are a couple of things that we need to break down here. So first, what are some of the things that people are saying right now that are pretty egregious? And and are they right in thinking that it is somewhat, in fact, egregious? Two, how does this relate back to the media's relationship with Republicans in general and Donald Trump in particular? And three, what actually should we expect from the media? Should we expect an objective media? Should we expect a media that is free of partisan bias? Or is that not actually something that we have a right to expect? And in fact, have we sort of misunderstood freedom of the press to a certain extent? And what that means in the First Amendment. So kind of a broad, wide-ranging podcast here. We're going to start sort of narrow, and then I think we're going to end with some some broader theoretical questions and, and implications. So what has conservatives particularly bothered about the coverage of the coronavirus. Well, there's a wide variety of spectrum of, of conservative critiques, and you can find people who are right of center in America right now making every argument from the idea that this whole thing is just sort of created by the media and is, is aimed at discrediting President Trump, which I think is not really a tenable argument, but people are making it, to the argument that the way in which Republicans are handling the crisis has been criticized because they are Republicans and the way in which Democrats are handling the crisis has been praised because they are Democrats by large sections of the media. A couple of these criticisms are somewhat fair. For example, I would say the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, has been widely criticized for, for example, not locking down his state as quickly as some other governors. Very rarely are people 
in you know that are that are writing these criticisms of him in the media outlets, pointing out the fact that Florida's counties are extraordinarily powerful to the point that by the time he did the lockdown, people that were were living in counties that were most badly affected didn't notice any difference because the counties had already done it considerably before Governor DeSantis did. Part of the reason that New York State handled the lockdown the way it did, frankly, and this is something that just about everybody who's not on his staff would agree with, is because Mayor Bill de Blasio dropped the ball so badly in New York City that that Cuomo had to step in. And of course, Cuomo and de Blasio have disliked each other for quite a long time, despite the fact that they're both Democrats from New York. They hate each other with the kind of intensity that only rivals for power in the New York Democratic Party can. So, you know, that's part of it as well. But there's, there's kind of some circumstances here that are, are missing from our analysis of the way things have gone in Florida. And things have not gone ba- as badly in Florida as they could have. So, you know, does that necessarily mean that every decision that DeSantis made was right? No, not necessarily. But I, I think that we're missing a little bit the fact that it's probably actually better to have a lot of these decisions made as locally as possible. If you can lock down a county instead of locking down the whole state, yeah, that's that's better. That that is is more effective, perhaps, if you get counties that are starting to get hit hard by this. You know, if we could have locked down downstate New York and New York City without locking down the entire state, would that have been preferable? Yeah, probably. You know, there there are other parts of the state that don't have the same economic impact, right? So if states have the authority, which a lot of them don't, to lock down part of the state, or if the local county and municipal officials actually have considerable latitude and authority based on on the way things are set up constitutionally to do things themselves. Yeah, it's better to do it at the local level if you can, because they can actually target it. They can actually focus it on the needs of their community. They are, in fact, living amidst the people both that are suffering from the disease and the businesses that are going to go out of business. So they're going to be the most accountable to all of those different constituencies local government is going to be the most responsive to the people and responsive to conditions. So if we can have this stuff handled at a more local level, we should, right? Another example that a lot of people have been critical of, there's been a lot of talk about how terrible it is that Georgia is reopening, much less talk about Colorado. Georgia has a Republican governor, Colorado has a Democratic governor, so the the argument is, you know, sort of, you do the math. No one's, everyone's talking about how bad Brian Kemp is, no one's talking about Jared Polis, and they're doing the same thing, right? So those are, are some of the arguments that are out there. Now, we'll come back and and address how much of this is, in fact, media bias that's based on ideology and how much of it's based on other factors, but that those are some of the coronavirus-related things that have people who are more center-right annoyed. The other thing is, of course, the way the media is covering this is it does tend to sensationalize. It tends to focus on the things that are, you know, the scary headline, and then you read the story a little bit further, and you're like, okay, well, this is a little bit more complex than this. The criticism, one of the criticisms that I have about media coverage of coronavirus is that as far as I can tell, most people who are actually like writing journalistic things about coronavirus are pretty much enumerate, okay? So the way math works, as far as I can tell in this, is that if you increase testing of people for coronavirus, you're going to see an increase in the number of positive tests, right? So if you see all of a sudden a spike in the number of cases reported in location X, right? But you're not also mentioning that 
testing has increased, giving people the impression that, oh my gosh, a bunch of new people got this and, and like things are getting out of control, when the reality is you're just testing more people. So of course your number of cases jumps, right? So numbers that we should be tracking are percentage of positive tests. And that, I mean, even that's assuming the testing is good, but, but for the hypothetical here we're, we're talking about, we are assuming that the testing is good. Now, we could do an entire separate podcast on numbers and politics and how people are functionally enumerate. And like after a certain point, people just don't understand how numbers work. And like there are ways in which we can't process this. And, and people who are actually smarter tend to, there's, there's some pretty robust academic literature that says that the more intelligent you are, the more likely you are to manipulate numbers to say what you want. And this is, there's a really interesting study by a couple of political scientists at Yale that broke this down. But I have resisted doing that podcast because I don't like math. And also because it's, it's talking about a lot of numbers and stats and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm not sure that you like math either. But anyway, that is one, one of the things that's frustrating about the media with this is, right, so like if you're going to put, be putting headlines out there that are focused on numbers, you should probably actually give some people some context as to what those numbers in fact mean. And that's not happening. They're, they're like recording death tolls, they're recording numbers of cases, things like that. They're not giving people any context as to how that fits. And that's been one of the things that's been very frustrating for me in this whole thing is that, and, and it's kind of my inner political scientist, like you need to actually tell me what that number means, how you're arriving at that number, how that number fits into the context of the other numbers, like how many tests you've done and things like that. Otherwise, the raw number that you just gave me is utterly irrelevant and meaningless. So that is a sort of pet peeve of, of mine. The other thing is that, and this is probably the most legitimate of the sort of partisan concerns that people have had about the media, is that it seems like there is an emphasis on you know, such and such has just happened with coronavirus. How does this affect President Trump, positive or negative? And for most elements of the media, it's it's negative, right? How does whatever just happened prove that Donald Trump is the worst president we've ever had and a giant ogre and a mini pants? Now, to be a little bit fair to the media, Trump is actively courting that reaction from them. You know, it is sort of Trump's WWE approach to politics of, you know, he's he's going to be in a cage match with the media as often as he can as much as he can, to the greatest extent possible, and he feeds into all of that. And that pivots to my, my second point, which is sort of pivoting off the specific issue of COVID and onto the broader issue of Trump himself. So, is the media biased against Republicans in general? I think the answer to that is if you're excluding sources that are explicitly catering to a conservative audience, right? So we're excluding the you know conservative talk radio, Fox News, and we are excluding the sort of, you know, broadly center-right opinion, you know, outlets. I think that there does tend to be a bias toward more left-wing and democratic policies and candidates among folks that are in the media and against more conservative Republican right-to-center-right candidates, policies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. I don't necessarily think that this bias is in, in any sense malicious, like that there's this grand media conspiracy to screw over Republicans, which is something that you sometimes get from Republican campaigns and messaging and, and stuff like that. And I understand why they do that, because it's catnip for the for the base. You know, the only the only people that the Republican base dislikes more intensely than, than the Democrats are probably the media as a general whole. 
right? So that's something that goes back way, way, way before our current conflict with you know Trump and the media. I mean, we could we could cite, for example, Pauline Kael, who was a reporter for the New York Times or uh, you know, wrote for the New York Times, who when Nixon was re-elected, winning forty nine out of fifty states, was astonished that Nixon could have won because she didn't know anyone who'd voted for him, right? So that's kind of one of the previous generations, my parents' generations, more classic examples of, of media bias. So why is there this tendency toward the left, toward the center left, and so forth in media environments? So my theory on this is that it's partly ideology, it's partly geography and proximity, <clears throat> and it is partly a focus of a certain type of education. So ideology, people who get into journalism in sort of the modern journalistic mindset. There's there's kind of this idea that, you know, crusading journalists will somehow save the world. There's a little bit of a hero complex about journalism, that you're going to report the truth, and you're going to save the world, and you're going to expose all of these terrible things that are happening, right? So there's there's a little bit of a, a hero complex with journalism. And when you have a hero complex, and you're, you're sort of approaching it from the perspective of, I'm going to save the world and, and get more of a just society out of this, People who have that tendency, unless they are coming at things from a pretty explicitly conservative Christian worldview, because you get some people with the hero complex from, from that background as well. But if you're, if you're generally more secular or you know, from sort of a mainline religious background, you're probably going to, with that attitude, end up in the left or the center left. Because conservative politics is sort of against the idea that one person can come in and, and save the world and create a utopia and fix all the things. That's just not the conservative approach to things. So that's part of it, right? There's there's partially sort of an idealistic conception of, of journalism and journalists and how they're going to sort of go in and, and save the world and a little bit of a hero complex, which is very modern. Come back to that. And I think the people who have those tendencies, you know, those those sort of ideological tendencies in that orientation are going to tend to gravitate toward the central left, again, unless there's a countervailing reason that says they should not, right? So that's the sort of personality aspect. The second aspect is actually, I would say, the rise of television. What do I mean by that? Well, before the rise of television, your average journalist is working for a newspaper. Your average person who's a member of the media is working for a newspaper. And most newspapers are local. They are the newspaper of whatever city you're in. And so reporters that are working for that newspaper, unless you work for something like the Associated Press or Scripps Howard or, or one of the news services that distributes the news to various different papers, if you're working for a local paper, you probably live in that local city, meaning you've got a much more geographically distributed media environment. Well, as television becomes the default media environment, the, the area in which people are consuming media, to the greatest extent, you start to see people concentrating where the television production studios and, and where TV is produced. And where is TV produced? New York, New York City, for a long period of time. New York City is a, is a capital on sort of the East Coast. And so you still see a lot of the media environment concentrated in New York. Washington, D.C., if you're a political journalist, of course, and you're reporting on TV, you're going to be doing that from D.C., so you're in kind of the Beltway bubble. And then, of course, California. Hollywood, and, and so on. So people who are working in TV are geographically concentrated in areas that tend to be highly urbanized, and increasingly, in previous, more, more recent decades, 
they tend to be in areas where you can go most of your time without meeting someone who is who is not a secular probably white person with a college degree that's the core demographic of the modern left secular educated white people with college degrees are sort of the constituency for which the democratic party is ideologically best suited now obviously the democratic party has a significant number of voters that are not in that demographic. But if you look at the median voter that Democrats are trying to appeal to with their ideology, it is secular, educated white people. Other groups in the Democratic Party are there for various different coalition reasons. So that makes sense, right? You're you're in an environment where people like you are going to be surrounding you and probably not going to actually encounter that many people who don't agree with you. So Pauline Kael's statement like sounds ridiculous. You're talking about not knowing anybody who voted for a person that won 49 states and a massive landslide in the popular vote. But when you factor in the fact that you're in a deep blue area, a deep blue pocket of a blue state, right? Then it, be, then it starts to make more sense. If you live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in the 1972 election, yeah, you probably don't know anybody who voted for Nixon. Probably not that many Nixon voters there. You know, a few, perhaps, if you happen to to see somebody who worked for, like, National Review or something, but not that many. So that becomes a factor, because if you're not living in amongst the people in other parts of the country, you're not going to have as good of a sense of their attitude. And this is, by the way, something that after, you know, Trump one for like five minutes everybody in the media is like oh my gosh we we really don't understand like large sections of the country we need to have better reporting from the heartland and then they forgot about it because fighting with trump was more fun but that probably would have been like a productive thing for a lot of these media companies to invest in figuring out like how how people there think now this is not by the way just liberal media One thing to think about when you think about Fox News and the way Fox News covered Trump during the Republican primary versus the other candidates, Fox News is based out of New York City. And so if you're from New York City, you know Donald Trump in a way that you don't know some of these other candidates. Obviously, Trump had a national name, but he is a fixture of New York City, not only politics, but also New York City culture, right? So there's a comfort level and a familiarity with and an understanding of how to handle the spectacle of Donald Trump for people that are working at Fox because they're from New York. If Fox News had been based in, let's just say, uh, Florida, probably there would have been a, a little bit more sort of natural coverage of, you know, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio. If Fox News had been based in California, maybe there's an advantage for Carly Fiorina. In, in you know, they're they're familiar more with her, and you know, she's a more a more natural fit, and people have those types of relationships with her. So there, there's kind of a a conservative aspect of this as well. Pivoting back to coronavirus for a second. One explanation of why the media has emphasized so much more the public health aspects than the economic aspects is because it seems like more Democrats are focused on the public health and more Republicans are focused on the economic right now, right? So that's the kind of narrative that's that's going around. However, another aspect of this is a significant portion of the media lives in New York, the New York, D.C. and metro areas of California, right? Those are areas that have been hammered by COVID. Like those are some of the most intense hotspots. So again, your experience, whether you know it or not, is going to shape the way in which you talk and think about things. 
So if you're surrounded by people that are getting sick from this, you're going to focus on that. And you're going to think that it's ghoulish to talk about the economy. If you're living in a more rural or suburban area where there are very few cases, but you're seeing a lot of people lose their jobs, you're going to focus more on that aspect. So the media is tending to overrepresent one perspective because it's also their perspective. It's where they live. It's what they're experiencing. And even for people who are journalists, experience is going to color their, their perceptions. So I think that's part of why we're starting to you know, see that emerge. Right? So there's this general tendency where you can see that the media would be... Oh, one other factor that I, I almost forgot to mention, but it's very, very important. And this is something that I think is a, is a fair and legitimate criticism of like 90% of folks in the press. And I don't want to say all of them because some of them get it. And I, I know some of them and friends with some of them. I hope that they're listening to this podcast. The vast majority of people in, in the mainstream media, I don't know to the extent to which Fox News counts in, in this particular criticism or not, but certainly if you're talking about the New York Times, MSNBC, you know, NBC, uh, or not NBC, uh, CNN, you know, the other big, big sort of media has absolutely no concept of what religion is or what it does or how it works or anything about it. The level of sheer ignorance and stupidity in the media's coverage of, of religion in particular is absolutely astonishing. And the degree to which they don't seem to know or care how much they don't know is even more astonishing. So that is definitely a factor that goes into this as well, because again, you, you're looking at a population that is deliberately, intentionally, and, and intensely secular. And when you are in that much of a secular bubble where you just don't understand basic things about religion, it's going to be really hard to relate to and report on religious people. You probably need more people in newsrooms who know something about religion, right? So that's just another, another factor that ties into all of this. So we take all of this together, and you can start to see how the media would be more inclined toward the left. Now, all of that being said, I don't actually think that explains the media's reaction to and treatment of President Trump. Because even if you compare the way the media reacted to George W. Bush, which is the one that I'm the most familiar with because I was in college and, and so on when he was president. Yeah, they really, really didn't like Bush. There was an intensely sort of anti-Bush aspect to the media. Things are on a whole different level with Trump. A much, much more intense level of antipathy with Trump. Why is that the case? I think there are a couple of reasons. The first one, and I think this is underappreciated by a lot of Trump supporters. Part of the reason the media is so intense in their reaction to Trump is because they're partially responsible, and I would even say largely responsible for his rise, and then on some level, they know it. Okay, think back to the primary. You had people saying, you had the president of CBS saying, Trump's not good for the country, but he's great for CBS, right? So we're going to cover him. You know, Rachel Maddow was, was, you know, yucking it up. I can't remember which political show, but I saw, you know, an, an interview with her where she's just like, oh yeah, I mean, he's, he's terrible, but this is great. Like, it's great for ratings, and you know, I love it, and it's so entertaining, and all this kind of stuff during the primary. And then Trump wins the primary, and there's this intense concern trolling, right? Like, oh, Republicans have done this, this horrible thing, you know, he's so bad for the country, by the same people who were just admitting that they were relentlessly covering him because he was great for ratings like three minutes ago. And then he wins the presidency, right? And so if you're one of those members of the media who covered Trump because it was good for your bottom line, you wake up the day after he won the election, and you realize something, you realize that if you hadn't done that, 
there's a pretty good shot somebody else would have won the primary. You know, a Ted Cruz, a Marco Rubio, a Carly Fiorina, right? One of these more normal Republican candidates. And if that happens, then you have a Republican president, but you have a normal Republican president, right? And from their perspective, Donald Trump is not that. I mean, Donald Trump is much more populist than anybody else that was running the Republican primary. Donald Trump is much more, I think it is fair to say, that Donald Trump will just do things to do them because words are coming out. You know, that's not necessarily something that, that you would have gotten from some of these, these other folks. Donald Trump had some folks who were in his orbit at the time that were do, doing things with other governments that they that had not properly disclosed. And yes, I'm talking about Michael Flynn, and no, I'm not talking about Russia. That is a separate podcast. But what Michael Flynn was doing with Turkey was really bad. Not that anybody was probably following that, but there were reasons to be skeptical of and suspicious of the Trump administration and Trump's team at that point, right? So you're part of the media. You wake up the day after Trump's elected, you realize, oh God, I've created a monster. I'm partially responsible for this, right? That's part of it. So there's an, I think there's an element of guilt, sublimated guilt in the part of the media because they think that they are, they are in part responsible for the rise of Trump. And I think that they are. I mean, <laughs> if you look back at, at how we got Trump, part of how we got Trump is because the media covered him obsessively to the extent of not really covering the other folks that were in the primary back in, you know, 2016. So yeah, they were, they were partially abetted the rise of, of Trump. There's no doubt about it. So that's one fact. The other factor is that George W. Bush did not play. He did not play the game. He would not refer to, you know, media criticisms of him. He would just sort of ignore it. And he stayed above it all because he was the president. And the idea was that's what the president's supposed to do. That was kind of the understanding most previous presidents had of the press, that engaging with them on that way was just not something that was done. You know, some, some presidents did it to a certain extent. Nixon, again, to a certain extent, much more so in private than in public. Even Washington in, in private would fume about the press. I'll, I'll come back to Washington here in a minute, but never in public, right? Because you're the president, you don't do that sort of thing. And then you get Donald Trump. And Donald Trump essentially built his entire career on doing that sort of thing. <laughs> like, being that person who would, you know, if people hit him, he would hit back and he would pick fights and he would, you know, have these cage matches with Rosie O'Donnell or whoever else he'd fired on The Apprentice or whatever. Like, that's how Trump built his brand. Trump, Trump is, in a sense, really famous for being a celebrity businessman, right? So the key component of that is celebrity. And he knows how to brand himself. And he knows how to brand himself by fighting. That's pretty much what he's done his entire career. And so the media became his bete noir. And so because of that, you have this mutually reinforcing love-hate relationship where they love to hate one another. And they, they obsessively focus on each other. And the rest of us kind of have to sit through it, right? So that's the media-Trump relationship. Like, is there, is there a good guy in this? Yeah, probably not, but it is what it is, you know, and, and that's the dynamic they've had, and that's the dynamic that they're going to have pretty much ad infinitum until Trump is no longer on the American political scene. That is unlikely to change. So, this is not great. Do we have him, you know, part of the problem with this is politics is entertainment when you're not in a crisis is one thing. But in the midst of, of the COVID crisis, it's probably not responsible to run with a story about how somebody like drank fish tank cleaner and died and this is Trump's fault without like doing more investigative reporting than people did on that. You know, we could talk about 
a number of other examples of media malpractice during the Trump administration, which in no way excuses the fact that Trump has said some stuff about the media that a president should not say about the press, even if you don't like them. There's just certain things that you don't do as president. I, I'm, I'm with you know George Washington and George W. Bush and, and everybody else who didn't do that on the fact that you're you're really not supposed to do that. I'm I'm fully on board with that perspective, right? So again, as I find myself so often saying in this podcast, we can walk and chew gum at the same time and say that neither of these things are good. So what is good? What should we expect from the media? I think the first thing, the, the fundamental thing for me that I've realized is I've started studying the relationship between the press and politics in the time of the Founding Fathers is that this idea of sort of the myth of the objective journalist, that there is this sort of objective journalist who's going to look you in the eye and tell you the objective truth, just the facts, free of partisan, you know, opinions and so on and so forth, is really something that was like created during the 1930s and 40s. It didn't exist before that. It didn't exist before that to the point where there were most newspapers had an explicit partisan affiliation. You know, the reason you see newspapers that are called like, you know, the Manchester Republican or the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle is because these were the newspapers of those political parties when they were founded. So, yeah, it, it's a very different media environment. And it is shaped by, number one, you had a very strong political consensus in American politics. The New Deal consensus was very, very strong throughout most of that time period. And number two, you had a lot of issues on which there really was kind of a need for the media to you know, pull together and, and try to present the facts. Now, the facts on the, those areas were the facts as they were also seen by the government. So World War II, classic example. The media is essentially providing the news in conjunction with the government. And there's, there's sort of a happy symbiosis between consensus politics and consensus media. And we get this idea of objective journalists that comes from that, you know, and Walter Cronkite, and that's the way it is, you know, that kind of mentality is an aberration in the history of the relationship between journalists and politicians. What's the actual norm? The actual norm is the first newspaper that's created in the United States is created by Thomas Jefferson when he's Secretary of State, who pays Philip Freneau to be a French translator on the payroll of the State Department. Freneau spoke not a word of French. What he actually did was published a newspaper that criticized the Washington administration, of which Jefferson was a part, but to which he was a political rival, because at that point you still had people in the administration from the other party, right? So Washington is using taxpayer dollars to pay someone for a translating job for which the person is not qualified, with which salary the person will then create a newspaper that promotes the opposition position to the government. This violates so many different ethics laws that we have right now about the relationship between media and politics and the use of taxpayer dollars for campaign purposes and whatever else you want to think of, but it's not even funny. And this is the dude who wrote the Declaration of Independence. The media norm is James Thompson Callender, who was essentially a gossip-mongering slanderer for hire, who served as a hired gun attacking Alexander Hamilton for his sexual peccadilloes, and then Thomas Jefferson for his. By the way, Calendar unearthed stuff that was true about both men. But, you know, he would go back and forth and was just this sort of scandal-mongering figure, right? He's the equivalent of the National Enquirer. 
right? So when we think about the freedom of the press that is laid down in the First Amendment, right, we have a tendency to think, oh, this is about people like Walter Cronkite. This is about, like, so that responsible journalists can tell the truth to the American people, and that's the purpose of freedom of the press. But that is not the purpose of freedom of the press when the First Amendment is written, because that Walter Cronkite objective journalist stereotype, stereotypical myth that we have in the 20th century did not exist. Journalists were essentially political hacks masquerading as, you know, having some sort of objectivity, or people who are writing incredibly scurrilous things about their political opponents. There's really no distinction between the news pages and the opinion pages in this time, right? So what's the purpose of the freedom of the press? The purpose of the freedom of the press is so that anybody can say whatever they want, and then the intelligent citizen will weed through it all and decide. That's how press freedom is supposed to work. The idea is not the government is going to prevent you from reading fake news, right? And we're going to have this professional guild of journalists who are going to decide what is news and what is not news, and we're going to professionalize the journalistic class. No, that's, that's not what they had in mind. They had in mind more the, you know, 18th century equivalent of bloggers sitting in the basement, of, you know, people posting crazy videos on YouTube. That's covered under freedom of the press, at least in terms of if you want to know what the founder's original intent was. Now, obviously there are limits, you know, there are libel laws, there's slander laws, all that kind of stuff. But the purpose is that people can say whatever they want to say in the press, and then you as the voter are the one who is supposed to decide. You are supposed to determine truth. You are supposed to determine the facts. You are just supposed to determine that's the way it is. It's not the job of journalists to tell you the truth. It's the job of journalists to report what they think. It's your job to figure out what's true. That's the understanding of freedom of the press the founders had. What does that mean for us today? It's, it's more complicated, obviously. I don't think the founders could have ever imagined the proliferation of social media or the idea of deep fakes or the fact that, well, they probably could have imagined the fact that foreign governments were going to try to produce content that would affect the United States and, and would be sort of passed off as, as American content. That actually is a <laughs> very lively dispute in the 1790s in which the Federalists are being accused of being puppets for the British and the Democratic Republicans are accused of being puppets for the French. So that that part, other governments are trying to influence our elections, the whole thing, yeah, that, that, that would have been familiar to them. But some of the things now that you can do with social media would not have been familiar to them, right? So that's something that we've got to think through. We've got these principles. How do we apply them in the age of things like deepfakes and other forms of, of fake news? That's a complicated question. Here's what's not a complicated question, okay? It's not the job of the journalists to actually weed through and tell us exactly what's happening with all of this COVID stuff, or how we should respond, or when we should reopen the economy, or even what's good and what's bad about what the president's doing. Their job is to tell us what they think, is to report. You know, obviously you want them to try to be accurate, but they're going to be biased. That's not a, necessarily a problem in and of itself. The problem is, have we as citizens lost the ability to cut through the bias and to reason things out for ourselves and to actually determine what is true? Because ultimately, it is not the job of politicians or the media to determine what the truth is in politics. It is the job of the citizen. It is the job 
of the American people to figure out the truth for themselves, right? That is the fundamental understanding of freedom of the press and even freedom of conscience. The government can't dictate it for you. There's not a guild or clique of journalists that can dictate for you and tell you what the truth is. It is your responsibility. And if we can't live up to that responsibility, if we can't do that, we've got bigger problems than the media not being great at what we perceive their jobs to be. Does that let the media off the hook? No. Should we call them out when they're wrong? Yes. But ultimately, the job falls to the citizens. There are responsibilities of citizenship. And in the United States, one of those responsibilities of citizenship is getting to the truth. Not your truth, not my truth, the truth. That's something the founders believed in. They believed that there was an objective good, an objective truth, and that it was the job of citizens through an informed and virtuous, well-formed conscience to figure out what that was, to discover and to pursue the good and the true. We can't rely on politicians to do that for us. We certainly can't. (laughs) The founders would have laughed at the idea that we can rely on journalists for that. But journalists are a mechanism. They're a mechanism for getting information out. Weeding through that information and finding truth is the responsibility of citizens and no one else. Okay, so that's going to wrap things up for this media-oriented episode. Covered a lot of ground there and probably didn't answer any, any specific questions or come to any real full resolution on that. I don't know that it's a resolvable problem, but I think hopefully this podcast has provided a way of thinking about the way the media does its job that is a little bit more holistic, brings in some of the understanding from the founders, and recognizes that sometimes ideology is also conditioned by other factors. So we have a couple of podcasts upcoming that I think are going to be pretty good. And I think they're going to be a little bit more on the the meaty side, but less on the COVID side. So I don't want to get too much into specifics because I haven't recorded them yet. But I think we're going to be turning to a little bit more sort of theoretical, international focused, and possibly some some stuff that's going to address religion and, and relationships between various different religious groups and how that impacts politics. So good stuff. Stick with us. Remember to rate and subscribe, tell all your friends, tell your family members, tell everyone you know that is interested in politics that they should also rate and subscribe and download and share on all of the various different social media platforms so that other people can hear what what I think on this podcast and what we think and what my guests think, and based on that, can discover, based on their own educated and virtuous consciences, well, that was hard to say, the truth. And so that being said, For Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte, signing off.